Hello, I'm Philip Carlson. I'm Chief Economist of Boston Consulting Group, and you're listening to the BCG Henderson Institute's podcast series. Today, I'm joined by Luciano Pietronero, Professor of Condensed Matter Physics at the University of Rome and Director of the Enrico Fermi Research Center in Italy. Interestingly, Professor Pietronero has also ventured into the field of economics and long-term growth forecasting of economies bringing some of his physics tools to address what's a tricky topic in economics. The intersection of his physics and economics work is the focus of our conversation today. And I thank you very much for joining me today, Professor. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me. Let's start with your work on economic complexity and economic fitness. The way you define economic complexity, I think, is you look at the output and production base of economies and you look at the sophistication of that output. In a few sentences, could you explain to our listeners the uh, concept and how it uh, helps forecasting growth of economies? Yes, we look at data first. So this is, we look at reality as in science. Then from this, you get an intuition. From the intuition, you construct a story and then you check the story. So this is the process. Which data we look? We look at the data of who produces what, namely you have countries and products, and you see that the most sophisticated countries, they don't produce just the iPhone, they produce everything from the very simple to the most sophisticated. So it's a sort of triangular matrix, countries and products. So we learn that diversification is a key element for progress. This is the observation. The intuition is okay, diversification is fine, but if you make, you know, this uh, little uh, water bottle, or if you make the iPhone, I mean, this cannot count exactly the same. So we made diversification weighted by the complexity of the products. So this is the formula for the fitness. So let's take a country example to make this very tangible. So I noticed in some of your output, you mentioned the BRIC economy. So Brazil, Russia, India, exactly. China. Yes which were once lumped together as a homogenous group with great growth prospects. And of course, it hasn't turned out like that. Just look at the divergence of China and Brazil. And you say that economic complexity would have predicted that divergence even 10 years ago or sooner. Now, taking Brazil, however, so um, if you take a classic interpretation of Brazil's underperformance over the last 15, 20 years, you would stress and emphasize for example, the quality of institutions, the challenges in political economy, indeed, the corruption scandal that has engulfed not just politics, but the economy, society. All of these are qualitative measures that ring very true. How does economic complexity capture that? Is it maybe even a proxy for those qualitative underlying issues? Well, yeah, this is very linked to the story of selecting data and reducing them. So the philosophy is that if you take the proxy of your capabilities as the products you are able to make plus the services, actually a better proxy would be the jobs you have in your country. This we cannot do because this is not a homogeneous measure. But let's take the products, products and services, okay? The idea is that if you are able to make a certain product behind this capability, there is also corruption. There is also infrastructure. There is also the financial system, because if this doesn't work, the industry doesn't make the product. So the philosophy is that all this stuff that you have in mind, corruption, capability of the government, honesty, and so on, is somehow summarized by what you do. 
This is a philosophical point of view that you know is not exact, but it's a price we decide to pay in order to have a clean data without arbitrary parameters. Because uh, the addendum I can make to my first statement on selection of data and dimensional reduction is that what we want is to have something that if you reproduce it, it is the same result and we can test scientifically. So this is our real difference with most of the economic approach. So the standard approach of the International Monetary Fund is to have one team per country, you know, with an approach which is tuned to each country. And then they have the Washington homogenization team, which somehow puts everything together. Now, if you want to test this result and do it yourself, it is impossible, totally impossible. In our case, we have our data, this is published. You want to test it, you take a smart PhD student for about two, three months, and you get the same result as we get. Okay, so this is a, for us a paramount quality that makes it scientific. So you can test it yourself, you can reproduce, and you can test with back test about growth. So you're saying economic uh, complexity picks up the underlying institutional dimension. It's a proxy for those drivers as well. And so this is how you square that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's turn to the topic of comparative advantage, which has a long history in economic thought. Is it fair to describe economic complexity and economic fitness as a measure of the breadth of comparative advantage? So in other words... It sounds like those that have breadth and comparative advantage but have low incomes today, they have a clear path to catch up growth. But those that don't have comparative advantage today and low incomes, their path is closed. And if that is true, is that a gloomy message really for those who haven't yet succeeded in building the complexity that you measure? I think what you say is uh, pretty close uh, to what we think. I mean, yes, I think this is a fair uh, description, roughly speaking. But let me be a little more precise about comparative advantage. For example, some people think that uh, the analysis of comparative advantage is somewhat uh, colonialist. For example, if U.S. discuss with Chile, they say, okay, Chile, you have comparative advantage in making, uh, you know, simple products. So you stay with the simple product because of your comparative advantage, and we sell you the sophisticated products. Some people think in these terms. That's not what... So what you said, I agree. But I don't agree on some interpretations that are given to comparative advantage. Let's talk about developing countries versus advanced economies and the predictive capabilities of your model. So I think it's very intuitive what you say when economic complexity is low, there is catch-up growth, and the model captures that quantitatively. It's less clear to me how the predictive capabilities of the model work for economies that are already advanced, particularly because your methodology appears to be a relative one. So catching up is relative to the most advanced economies. And so it almost seems difficult to capture the path for those that are already very advanced or is it even the case that the fact that others are catching up with the most advanced ones in a relative sense actually pushes down the most advanced ones? So how this, do you think about advanced economy well, growth? This is a very challenging uh, question. So, I mean, I have different answer for this. Let me start with the easy ones. When we look at this flow of in two dimension, you see that the right side, the, the countries which have uh, somehow high fitness and relatively low GDP per capita, 
that is where your uh, forecasting has the highest quality. So what we add to the standard forecasting is the quality of the forecasting. So we can tell you, we expect this, but this is with high quality. In other area on the left, when you have somehow low fitness, that's more chaotic behavior, we have less quality. So we had an intrinsic quality assessment. So the best countries are like Vietnam, countries which have large fitness and relatively low GDP per capita. There we are very confident. Also China has been such a thing. I mean, so the interesting point of China is the way we learn is to learn from the past, basically. We look at the patterns in the past. But how do you learn about something that never occurred in the past? Because China never occurred in the past. So that's very interesting. So the scheme of fitness versus GDP per capita gives you a way to look at what is a total outlier. So China appears as a total outlier in this graph. And so you can even give an assessment on things that never happened in the past because they occupy a very unique zone in this diagram. Concerning developed countries, this is certainly probably the most difficult question. So it's where, you know, forecasting the growth doesn't make sense. Take Italy now, apart from COVID, uh, forget COVID, I mean, COVID is another story. But suppose up to one year ago, Italy can grow 0.5, 1, minus 0.2. So that's, uh, Vietnam grows by 6, okay, or China has been growing by 7, 8, or 10. So that's where we get a strong signal. For Italy, France, UK, we don't get a strong signal. We get a weak signal for the growth. So what we have to do, we have to resort to use the more data those with it, that we didn't use before. For example, the data on patents, so on innovation. Then you can build the space of uh, technologies and you can locate your country in the space of technologies. Then even for these developed countries, you can add a new dimension with the technological fitness. So you have to go to another dimension of data. So we don't throw away the data that we left out before, but the first picture is an impressionistic picture of the global economy that goes from US to the poorest countries in Africa. From this picture, you solve the China mystery, which is a, for us was quite pleasant. Then you want to know the difference between Italy and France, which are pretty similar in this type of global picture. Then you have to go into the technological space, do the technological fitness, and even the scientific activity. So you have to put a magnifying lens and add more information. In terms of prediction, however, let me circle back to advanced economies. So if I look at your key visual, which shows a regression line that shows you where is a country's income expected to be relative to its economic fitness. If I look at that regression line, I see a number of countries above the line to the right. Germany, I think I remember, South Korea. Are you predicting that there is downward pressure on these economies? Or are you even saying there will be negative growth because they're above well, the line? Certainly, let me put it this way. The red line is not really a regression line. It's a sort of equilibrium line. I mean, if you are there, more or less, you make as much money as you should given your fitness. But take Germany, for example, which is a little bit above. But, you know, you shouldn't take this as with a microscope. It gives you an idea. Now, what happened to Germany as with the rest of Europe and US? What happened was that China has eroded a lot of manufacturing jobs. You know, so in my opinion, the Trump phenomenon or the Brexit phenomenon is really due to this. Namely, big lumps of jobs 
went to China because China doesn't have raw materials. I mean, they do things by manufacturing. So if China became so competitive, since everything is relative, it is clear that we Westerners and Germans are less competitive. So certainly it is challenging and difficult to stay in that zone. If you are able to do it, it means you are very good. But you have to be aware that you are competing with the rest of the world. And the example of China has shown that all the Western economies went back in fitness simply because China, with such a big amount of uh, production, went up. So everything is relative. And if you want to be above the red line without having something like oil or something which alterates completely this equilibrium, then you have to be aware that you are in a challenging position, to some extent at risk. This is the way we would put it. <laughs> Let's talk about systemic and structural change. How does economic complexity in your model capture that? So economies are open, complex systems. The rules change, imbalances grow, shocks occur. But most importantly, you have slow-moving glacial speed of structural change. <laughs> and in fact, the biggest criticism of economics, perhaps as a discipline, is that pre-2008, before the global financial crisis, the discipline ignored the financialization of economies. It ignored the financial system, which however, harbored all their risk. So my question is, how does your model deal with the systemic and structural risks that are constantly evolving? Well, your question is very challenging. This is our research project, so to say, in a way. Okay, very good. <laughs> Let me split into something easier, risks. Let's talk about 2008. Uh, crisis. What are we witnessing? We are witnessing a situation in which 6% of the real estate capital of US, which is a lot, but is also little compared to the world. So this 6% went broke and made a catastrophe for all over the world for 10 years. Is this possible? Our interpretation is a little bit different. So this was a shock. However, this shock triggered another instability, which is to do with, with China, that eroded a big fraction of the manufacturing power of the West and US. We see that not as the butterfly effect, which I mean, 6% of real estate in the US is a hell of a lot, but it's really very much less than the global world effect that we see. So in our opinion, that was coincident with the coming up of China and India. And this gave a global instability to the whole of the West. Because if you look at China, for example, you look at GDP growth of China, you don't see the 2008 crisis. So if you go to China and you tell that there is the world crisis of 2008, the Chinese will tell you which crisis, we didn't see it. So it is a Western crisis. And in my opinion, the fact that it is a Western crisis means there was an intrinsic weakness of the West with respect to the rest of the world. So it's a little bit more sophisticated, in my view. But this was one part of your question. But there was another one that was equally interesting, and I don't remember now. I guess my point would be, let's take a concrete country example, China. And you've emphasized that economic complexity predicted China's continued growth quite accurately. But would economic complexity capture the financial risks that are also building? So you have credit growth that is unprecedented. It's sustainable so far, but there are potential scenarios where it becomes unsustainable. 
And when an economy, particularly a middle-income economy, is hit by a financial crisis, that could throw it back on its development path uh, for many years. It could, you know, paralyze it for for many years, or you know, in the worst case, indefinitely. So my point is the model, as it is focused on economic complexity, the sophistication of output, all that isn't isn't sort of tied into, if I understand it correctly, these risks that are systemic in nature and predominantly rooted in the financial domain. Is there any way of capturing that or is it sort of outside of the model? I mean, first, uh, the first answer is it's outside. However, consider that to make a product, you need finance because you need to, uh, to finance the industry. So in a way, so what we don't capture is a change of these parameters. So if the finance was good up to now, then you see that in doing this product, uh, there is also finance. If the finance has a crisis, then this uh, will take some time to reflect into products. However, there is a limit. I mean, basically what we do is industrial analysis. I mean, mostly, not so much financial. However, there is a finance element into it as well. What I can add is that uh, with respect to shocks, for example, finance is a problem, but earthquake is another problem, or the the virus, for example. Now take the virus. I mean, we have checked that uh, the fitness is uh, quite related to resilience. So a country which has high fitness is also able to react to any shock better than a country with low fitness. You can see China is an example. I mean, China will be one of the few countries which has a positive GDP growth, even though there is COVID. And this is perfectly aligned with our studies. Let me ask you about forecasting. Have you done work to backtest the model? So basically taking a point in the past, say 2000 or 1990, restrict yourselves to the available data at that point in time, look at the predictions your model would have generated kind of actually at that point in time and compare it to to the realized path. Okay. Is that something you've done? Yeah. For once, uh, you don't ask me for something we want to do, but for something we have done. (laughs) Okay. I mean, this was for us a a crucial element because this is the scientific test for me. I mean, you cannot make experiments, you can make this back test. Well, so suppose we are in 2005 and we have all the data up to 2005 and we forecast for the next five years and then in 2006. And then, and so this has a detailed papers also from the World Bank and Nature Physics. And so I can quote what Bloomberg News says. It says something like the fitness method it overcomes all the other methods despite using less data, something like this. So this was the statement of Bloomberg about all this work. But if you want, I can send you, you can find in our web page, but I can send you. So this is something we made a very special effort and also is something that gave us credibility. I mean, because also the World Bank was very keen on doing this test. And so now that we have done it extensively, somehow, people take us a little more serious. I mean, in specific, uh, we do better than the IMF, uh, I think by five, 10%, better than them. And consider the number of uh, people and the data, et cetera, is uh, 100 times less. So this is something you can do yourself in a few months with a couple of uh, collaborators. So it's not something you need, you know, a thousand people. But, you know, our approach also with IMF was not uh, that we were making a football match who, who scores more goals. Our approach is that we respect them. They went for a different uh, information space, so to say, and uh, 
it can be seen that the two information space that those that we use with the limited data, those they use with all the data packaged together with many parameters, they pick different informations which are complementary. So this means that if we average our result with their result, this is better than either of us. We try to fish a certain type of fish, they try to fish another type of fish, but if we fish together, the fish is better than either one. This is very interesting. I have one final question for you, perhaps a little philosophical. I couldn't help notice that as a physicist straying into the field of economics, you essentially embody the profession's so-called physics envy. So, you know, the idea that economics should be as precise and accurate and elegant as the natural sciences. So my question to you is, when you bring these tools into economics, do you intend it to be truly shifting the way economics as a discipline works? Do you think the discipline should aspire to be like physics? Or is it a more modest take where you think there is an additional angle to offer here to complement what already is done in economics? So first I told you my position. We pretend to have something better, but we accept to be judged by economists. Okay, This is the way we put it. And honestly, that's our point of view. So I don't say what the economists should do. All I can say is uh, if you have a problem, I can give you my proposition for an answer or for an approach, and maybe then we can compare. I cannot say I have the superior method. For example, when I talk to qualitative economists, you know, sometimes we have very interesting dinners because they are not stupid. They have some ideas which are qualitative. Then I can use those ideas and try to turn them quantitative. So this is my job. So the qualitative is a stimulus. And some people, are, I mean, I meet smart people. Some people are, of course, now I'm making a bit too diplomatic. The truth is that certain things are ridiculous in economics. What is ridiculous in economics? In economics, what is ridiculous is the ideologization of the theories. For example, there is neoliberalism and Keynes or structuralism, the state should do things. If you talk to a neoliberalist, can okay, I make a joke? Okay, But it's true, by the way. You say, look, the system should be in equilibrium unless there is a big shock. In 2008, there was no shock, no meteorite, no earthquake, no atomic bomb, and the system collapsed. So your theory is wrong. You know what is the answer by the Chicago guys? The answer is the system collapsed, not because our theory is wrong, but because financial institutions are too greedy. Okay? Interesting answer. Now, suppose I have a theory of high temperature superconductivity, something physics, you do the experiment and my theory doesn't fit your experiment. Then I could say, it's not that my theory is wrong, but your electrons are very stupid because they don't follow my theory. It's the same logic, but you are laughing, you are smiling now, you didn't smile before because the fact that the financial institutions are greedy is true and it may be a problem, but God damn it, your theory should include that. It's not that, uh, you see, so the fact that we are not electrons, we are not elementary particles, we are people and institutions, you, it permits a dialectic, which is very strange. Because, you know, on one end we make a theory as if you explain nature, and we should be part of nature, even the financial institutions as they are. But then you make a story that is like a program. You have to do what I tell you, which is another story, and in physics is impossible. So this strange way of not learning from the wrong uh, 
situations, I think is a big limit. So my view is that there is no neoliberalism, there is no Keynes. I mean, each is interesting and it works in a certain situation. Our view is that like in medicine, there is not one cure for all sicknesses. Also in economic, there is not one theory for all situations. So in this sense, uh, we are aligned with uh, Justin Lin of uh, Peking. I mean, he's advisor of the China government, uh, which has uh, this uh, new structural economics, which tells you exactly this. There is not one medicine for all sickness. So for us, this ideological debate is, uh, is very silly, is intellectually useless, and it is a big damage. Professor Pietranera, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much.